This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. To call the show, dial 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello and Happy New Year, Professor Gershon. Happy New Year, Liz. I hope uh, you survived the uh, snowmageddon that we had here in Mississippi. Um, really, uh, I think though Zoom may make snow days a thing of the past. And uh, but I'm really, I'm really excited that we're going to be starting off the year uh, with uh, a discussion about immigration law with Amelia McGowan and Mike, Max Myers from uh, uh, the Mississippi Center for Justice. Uh, it's such an important topic and. Uh, really want to welcome them to our show. And would y'all please tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you became interested in immigration law? Sure. Thanks, Richard. Uh, we're really happy to be here this morning. Thanks, everybody who's listening. Um, so I'm a proud native of Hattiesburg, um, and I have to, I guess, credit my immigration law beginnings to Southern Miss at Honors College. Um, when I was a student at USM in undergrad, I actually wrote an honors thesis in the history program about Latin American students coming to study at USM back in 1947 uh, through the present. And getting to study about these students and also volunteering at the EOI, which is the current iteration of the Latin American Institute, um, I got to really know a bunch of uh, students who had immigrated to the United States, wanted to stay in the United States, were very anxious about their future and options. And that's what pushed me to go to law school. Um, and. I went to law school with the sole purpose of going into immigration law, and thankfully, thankfully, I loved it. Thankfully, it worked out, and I got a, a joint master's in Latin American studies that really helped me to provide context uh, for what I do. Um, most of my career since then is focused on immigration, um, and I've been at the Mississippi Center for Justice since 2018. Um, my work here really focuses on representing asylum seekers, um, specifically at the appellate level. And one of my favorite parts of the job is getting to work at, uh, as an adjunct at Mississippi College School of Law, where I get to teach immigration law and teach future immigration lawyers through the immigration clinic. Thank you. And Max, what about you? Um, well, it's great to be here with you all, and uh, thank you for having us. Um, I grew up in Michigan uh, and, and moved to Mississippi a little over 10 years ago, originally to teach in the Delta. Um, stayed here for about five years before I went to law school. Um, my particular interest in law school was uh, civil rights and immigration. Um, and as you might guess, um, my career since then has been a combination of both of them. Um, I work at the Mississippi Center for Justice uh, with, with Amelia, and my focus in particular um, in addition to uh, dealing with the ICE raids from 2019, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, I also, um, a lot of my work deals with um, individuals that are that are Mississippians, but also immigrants and the rights that they have and the lives that they live. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people think of immigration issues as relating to states like California and Texas, uh, which are closer to the borders. Uh, but does Mississippi have a high number of immigrants? So uh, Mississippi is, uh, I guess, first and foremost, a home to a growing number of immigrants. Um, it, and, and you're absolutely right. When, when people think about immigration in uh, the United States, places like Texas, California, New York tend to pop up. Um, but Mississippi's immigrant population is is unique um, in that 
we actually have um, a, a lot of folks that are spread throughout the entire state, uh, from poultry workers here in central Mississippi to uh, people that, uh, that pick potatoes, sweet potatoes up in, in the north, as well as fishing and construction in the south. Um, we have individuals living in our, in our state that are Mississippians. Um, they've been here for oftentimes 10 years or more. Uh, they have families, uh, kids go to school here. Um, and, and what we consistently hear is that Mississippi is, is home. It's where people have bought a house. Uh, and it's also, um, for a lot of folks, um, a, a place where, who, who have faced fear and, and uncertainty in their countries of origin. This is the first place where they have a sense of security uh, in, in their lives. So now, when you a lot of the immigrants you deal with, are, are, I would imagine, are undocumented. Um, uh, it, uh, so, what kind of special challenges are there for undocumented people in in Mississippi? So, um, so Mississippi. Is, so you, you are right. Mississippi is a is a state, uh, one of the states with the highest uh, proportion of their immigrant population is undocumented. Um, about a third of Mississippi's immigrants were undocumented as of 2016. Um, and when you compare that to places like California or Texas, uh, those numbers are a little bit closer to 20%. And really what that, what that translates to is political power uh, or the, the lack of political power rather on the state and local level. Uh, we see particular in, uh, issues in Mississippi that impact uh, immigrants' lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, things like driver's licenses. The state of Mississippi does not grant driver's licenses to undocumented people. Um, so unless you have DACA status, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, or a, a green card or some other sort of, of actual immigration status, you're unable to drive in the state. Uh, similarly, college admissions, um, the state of Mississippi, uh, uh, be because of the, the laws involving residency for how tuition and, and college entrance is determined, um, uh, uh, undocumented students are not permitted to attend uh, colleges and, and community colleges in the state. So what you can actually see is someone who was raised their entire lives here in, in the state, went to school, public school their entire lives, graduate from Mississippi High School and not be allowed to um, to attend um, uh, community college here. And then I'll also say one, one last thing, which is that um, it, Mississippi's immigrant population deals with a particularized um, a, a threat to them, which is uh, the local and state coordination with ICE. Uh, what that really means is that um, here in the state, uh, folks um, are, 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 are policed at a local level by state and, and county uh, sheriffs who um, oftentimes work in coordination with Immigration and Customs Enforcement to, uh, to find people without authorized immigration status, um, arrest them, and, uh, and, and hold them on behalf of ICE. Um, and, and what we have seen in places like um, Canton, for example, which recently dealt with a, a horrible tragedy in uh, a string of armed robberies and a triple homicide, is that there's really a need for people to feel comfortable talking with the police. Um, and, and I know the Canton Police Department, and I have, I have the utmost respect for them, and I, and I know that they're constantly working to, to try to uh, partner with the community. And, and what's really necessary for, for that to, to really take hold and for protection of all, all, of, this, all of the residents in, in places like Canton or Mississippi is for um, is for law enforcement to have an, an open relationship with immigrants in which immigrants don't feel like by contacting the police, they're exposing themselves to potential immigration repercussions. Our guests today are Amelia McGowan and Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We're talking about immigrants and immigrant rights. Amelia, my kids are all 20-something now, but they went through the Jackson Public Schools 
And when we had to register for them, they asked for the Social Security number. Uh, part of that was, you know, before um, fraud and, you know, knowing the importance of keeping your Social Security number secret. But undocumented individuals wouldn't have a Social Security number. So is is that still the case? Is that a, a school district by school district decision? Well, um, I actually used to work at the ACLU. I worked at the ACLU of Mississippi for a couple of years, and we saw this very issue pop up in a couple of districts. Um, There's a a really important U.S. Supreme Court case called Plyler versus Doe uh, that recognizes the right of undocumented children to, or children of undocumented individuals to receive a public education, K-12 education. Um, One thing that we argued is that requiring a social security number is an illegal barrier. Uh, to to that access. Um, and so we contacted a few school districts who had that policy, and thankfully they removed that question from their forms. Um, but in, in, in my opinion, that would definitely violate that case. And, and even if I've, I've even seen more modern forms that say, you know, uh, it's optional, but I think even an optional, uh, you know, request for a social security number could potentially uh, chill people who might not have a social security number from enrolling children. It's, it's so it's so interesting. I mean, it's, it, it I, you know, I think what I, I, a lot of people miss is how immigrants add so much to our economy, too, and are you know, paying taxes and, and things like that. So, um, you know, not, you know, making it harder for their children to be educated is, is really, you know, bad for everyone in that respect. Um, so, you know, what exactly, uh, I mean, if we look at um, immigrants in, in Mississippi, and we're going to talk specifically about asylum and, and ICE in the next segment, but um, what has been your experience in terms of, of dealing with clients? Are they concerned? Or are they scared of the justice system and, and the legal system? Emil, you, you want to? Sure. I think in, I think in many cases it, it depends on the individual status. So some of our clients have some form of, of immigration status. They might be asylees, um, and they might be applying for uh, a green card. Whereas some of our clients have no status and are seeking a way to get a status. Um, I think there are different gradations of uh, you know apprehension working with government officials. Um, kind of depending on the individual's experience. But overall, you know, there are so many barriers, both at the state and federal level, to immigrants of, of, of any kind, you know, regardless of status, um, that I think many of our clients absolutely do have apprehension. And then events like the ICE raids that happened in 2019 here in Mississippi um, only magnify that fear for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it's always a fear that even if it didn't happen in their community, you know, it might very well happen next, you know, especially with so much talk about immigration enforcement. You can send your questions by email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing immigration, immigration rights. Are you interested in hearing more about immigration? We'll tell you how you can learn more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is in legal terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you want to know more about immigration and immigrants' rights, on October 1st of 2019, In Legal Terms hosted guest Patricia Ice, Legal Project Director at Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance. And you can find that podcast on any of our podcasting apps that are for your smartphone or smart device. This morning, we're talking with Amelia McGowan and Max Myers, attorneys from the Mississippi Center for Justice, talking about immigration in Mississippi. We do have a phone call to go to. Let's go to Chuck, who's called in from Jackson. Chuck, thank you so much for being part of our show today. What is your comment or question? Hi, Liz. Um, Because your guests are from the Mississippi Center for Justice, I was just calling to express my gratitude for the work that they do um, in the uh, months now since the events of August 7th of 2019. I've uh, been present in some small and occasional ways with the immigrant community in Canton particularly, and I'm just so grateful for the work that the Mississippi Center for Justice does. It's so important, and just wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you so much, Chuck. That means the world. Amelia, yeah, what we really, was, really appreciate that. Oh, Max, what were some of the things that the um, Mississippi Center for Justice did do for in at that time for in Canton? Absolutely. So, um, in, um, and just for our listeners that are that are, are not aware of the of the, the raids uh, from 2019, on, on August 7th, 2019, um, ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, along with um, a couple other federal agencies and, and some support from local law enforcement, were executed um, the largest single state ICE raid, um, immigration raid in, in um, American history. And they ended up uh, capturing 680 individuals in communities uh, spanning Canton. Forest, Morton, uh, Carthage, Laurel, um, and what uh, what our role really was uh, at, at that point was a couple of things. Uh, we worked with some partners to provide uh, free bond uh, representation to individuals that were detained that day. Um, people are, are when they're arrested for immigration purposes, they're taken uh, to a detention center. Uh, sometimes here in Mississippi, oftentimes in Louisiana. And they're given, depending on their case, they're given an opportunity to uh, to get a bond. Um, and then long term, uh, we have provided representation 
uh, for individuals' immigration cases uh, to every person that, that signed up for, uh, for our um, legal support. Um, we've also matched individuals uh, with other pro bono attorneys, both in the state and around the country. Uh, we've actually had over uh, 70 uh, attorneys from around the country that have volunteered to take on representation for these cases. And, and, and this is no small feat. I mean, these are cases that can oftentimes stretch uh, one and a half, two, two and a half years. And so um, to, to see the outpouring of support that we had uh, re really meant, meant a lot, um, I, I know, to MCJ as, as well as um, to our uh, partners in the community. We, we so greatly appreciate your work. Now, you mentioned ICE. Can you give us a little bit more? What exactly, we, we hear about ICE, and, and, and what exactly is their role? And, and what is their, uh, what, are, what is it, why are, why are they set up? What are they set up to do? I didn't say that very artfully, but what is ICE? Absolutely. So um, ICE it stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, the first thing I want to I want to clarify because I know there there has been a, a large movement uh, called abolish ICE and, and things like that. And the first thing that people think of when they imagine abolishing ICE is no protection of the border um, and 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 people being able to to essentially not open border policy. Basically, um, those are very different agencies. That's Customs and Border Patrol (CBP) that actually protects our borders. ICE is a completely internal uh, policing uh, federal policing uh, agency. So they are tasked with uh, finding individuals that are in the country without authorization. Um, there are different priorities. Those priorities are in terms of who they're looking for. Those priorities are set at the uh, federal level by uh, oftentimes by the president. So what we saw under uh, President Obama, for example, was a priority for individuals with um, violent uh, crime criminal records. Um, but at that, as, as I said, each president can set their own agenda. And so what we've seen under the current administration is, is a, a broader approach in which it's uh, less discriminated in, in who they're looking for. And what we end up seeing in that sense is a lot of ICE um, enforcement actions here in the state um, that uh, arrest moms and dads, um, grandparents uh, who are on their way to work uh, because they don't have a driver's license uh, that can oftentimes lead to a local police officer holding them on behalf of ICE. Um, and, and for and so what, what you've actually seen in, in the state, the, one of the most common trajectories uh, for an individual going from just living their life to ending up behind bars and in, in, in an immigration detention center is uh, someone driving in their car, uh, stopped at a roadblock, a checkpoint, and uh, they don't have a driver's license because, again, as I mentioned in the beginning part of this program, Mississippi does not grant driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants. Um, and so without a driver's license, they can be arrested, uh, held on behalf of ICE for up to 48 hours, um, and then transferred to ICE custody, where they are then left to fight for their lives, basically, and fight for their livelihood to stay here with their families. So if someone is in that situation, and, and obviously in Canton, they reached out to the Center for... How did they know to reach out for the Mississippi Center for Justice for Help? So I, um, actually, I think this is a great opportunity to turn over to uh, Amelia. Was actually uh, present during the during the, the month of August uh, and, and was in, I mean led the, the 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 raids work at that point. And so I I was um, I joined uh, uh, later on in that month. So um, yeah, I'll turn things over to Amelia for that. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. There are a um, wonderful there's a wonderful network of organizations in the area um, that we sort of formed a network, a coalition after the raids, but we already had relationships with a number of the organizations before the raids. 
Um, so immediately after the raids happened, um, this coalition formed, again, it's sort of a group of community organizations, religious organizations, legal organizations, um, and we provided legal clinics in all the affected communities. Um, so we had pretty regular weekly legal clinics where people could just come ask questions, give us information if they wanted uh, legal assistance. Um, and from there, our network really grew and people you know, came to learn more about the work of the Mississippi Center for Justice. And so from there, you know, we've gotten a lot of questions, a lot of calls about other immigration issues just because of you know, the coalition's work in the area. People came to know the type of work that we do and um, you know, through this network. That's great. So, they, so if, if someone out there listening um, is uh, maybe an undocumented person, um, can, they, can they reach out directly to you for, for assistance? Yes, absolutely. So our, um, our focus areas are actually fairly limited. We work on the race cases. Uh, we work on asylum cases and asylum appeals. Um, we do some DACA work and detainer work. Um, but even if the person's question doesn't fall within sort of our, our scope, um, as I mentioned, there is this great network that developed after the raid. So, you know, if we are unable to help, we're happy to, you know, try to refer people or provide as much information as we can. Um, in order to contact us, uh, people can call us at 601-352-2269 or visit our website at mscenterforjustice.org. Um, our immigration staff, we speak English and Spanish, but we can sometimes get volunteer interpreters for other languages if needed. That's great information. And, and uh, Liz, I think you know, we will have their uh, contact information on the uh, website you know, with this podcast uh, when, it's, when it's up later so that people know who to get in touch with. We um, certainly yeah. will. And in fact, if you keep your pen and paper ready, we'll give out that phone number and some additional information when we come back from a break. Email us with your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with our guests, Amelia McGowan and Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice about immigration and immigration rights. And we're going to give you that contact information for the Mississippi Center for Justice next. So make sure you've got that pen and paper ready. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone. Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We really do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. Lots of different podcasting platforms, Spotify, uh, Podcast Addict, 
Stitcher. You can download it to your smart device. On mine, I touch the plus, and it takes me to the page to search for podcasts. Then I typed in, in legal terms, it brings up our show, our little logo with the columns, and you're able to touch the photo, then subscribe. That way I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up, which we try to do the evening, afternoon that the shows air. We're talking this morning about immigration and immigration rights with our guests, Amelia McGowan and Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. Now, I hope you grab that pen. If you or someone uh, you know or someone part of your organization needs to contact the Mississippi Center for Justice, the Jackson office phone number is 601 352 2269. The Biloxi office number is 228-435-7284. There's an Indianola office. That number is 662-887-3570. And the website is mscenter4justice.org. And if you do slash contact, there's also a contact form to reach out to them. We do have a call. Let's go to uh, Sue from Beaumont. Sue, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, I'd just like to make a comment that um, there is a legal way to get into the United States. And so why are all these lawyers and other people so eager to help people who are coming into the United States illegally? And also... I lived in San Antonio, Texas for years, and there's a lot of illegal immigrants across the border down at Laredo and other places. And um, they come into the United States, and right away the illegals get um, food stamps and subsidized housing and things that people who live and work in the United States can't get. And I wonder, why, why, why is everybody wanting to rush to the defense of people who are coming across the border illegally? <coughs> So I, I would um, I can I can go ahead and take that question absolutely. Um, so first I'll, I'll say um, that this uh, you know the th- this question is, is very common and, and I think it represents um, a bigger uh, issue in, in our country, which is um, the the general knowledge about the law and, and what folks know and, and what folks are told to, to be true. And so um, the the first thing I'll say is that um, there you, you are absolutely right. Um, there is a, a path for people to uh, to come to the country with permission. Um, Unfortunately, though, for a lot of individuals, uh, the line right now. So, I'll, I'll, to give you some context, if you look up um, the the current, it's called if you Google search the visa bulletin for the United States each month, the United States government uh, provides a an updated uh, wait time for people that are filing uh, certain types of visas, uh, family based visas. And so, right now, for people from Mexico, for example, if you are filing a uh, visa, applying to get someone to come into the country. There can be up to a 25-year wait at the moment to get in, um, and that doesn't work uh, for, for people. And so what, what you end up seeing is that people come in uh, to, to rejoin with their family, uh, and as a result of that, they're in the country without authorization. Another way that people come in is through asylum, and that's actually not an illegal way to come into the country. America's asylum laws, and, and I know Amelia's going to talk about this in, in, a, in a few minutes, but they, they are set up specifically for people to be able to come in uh, without advance notice and wait here during the entirety of their case. Um, the last thing I'll go ahead and mention is um, 
is that when you when you talk about things like undocumented immigrants getting food stamps or other types of government assistance, um, that's actually not true. Um, and 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 children of undocumented immigrants who are U.S. citizens, um, they are eligible to receive um, things like Medicaid, um, food stamps, SNAP benefits. But it's not going to the parent in the sense that if let's say there's a family of three. Um, a mom, dad, and a U.S. citizen child, and both the mom and the dad are undocumented, that family would not be receiving uh, Medicaid for three or food stamps for three. They would be receiving uh, for one, which would be the U.S. citizen child. Um, I, I think a lot of that is, is, is pretty necessary to understand uh, as far as what options are, are available for undocumented immigrants. And also, I think, helps clear up a lot of the uh, oftentimes um, Confusion and, and hostility towards people thinking that uh, that that folks are, are here to to take uh, or abuse the system, and in reality, these are folks that are not takers, but rather um, makers in a lot of way. They 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 contribute and and provide a lot to our society. Thanks, Sue, for calling in. We appreciate your call. Yes, thank you, Sue. Uh, but you know, Max, you mentioned. Uh, Asylum and, and Amelia has worked on asylum appeals. And so what is asylum exactly? So, Richard, that is a fantastic question. And I always tell my students when I teach the immigration law seminar or the immigration law overview that I would love to teach a semester-long class on it because it's such a complicated, really, you know, uh, vibrant area of the law. But in a nutshell, um, asylum is a legal protection for people who hold a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country um, on the basis of a legally protected ground. Um, those grounds include race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and membership in a social group. Probably the, the sort of quintessential asylum case that most people think are people who are political uh, dissidents, right? Um, but it is much broader than that. And there are a few additional requirements, but that's really the heart of it. And the basis for U.S. asylum law, a lot of people don't know this, um, is actually a treaty. It's the 1967 U.N. protocol relating to the status of refugees. And there's actually a, another treaty, the U.N. Convention Against Torture, that provides similar protections for people fleeing torture. Um, it's a pretty difficult uh, benefit to get. It's a difficult, um, you know, sort of process. It's a very difficult process to go through. But if you do get it, it comes with a number of benefits. One of the the best is the opportunity to apply for a green card after you get asylum. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, there is a misconception that you just come to the United States, you apply for asylum, you get it. It's actually a very difficult, arduous process. So how does a person qualify for asylum? So in order to qualify, as Max mentioned, you just have to physically be in the U.S. Um, and prove your legal eligibility. There's a common misconception, I know this came up in the news a couple of years ago, that you have to apply at a port of entry, but that's, that's not the case. You just have to physically be in the United States or at a port of entry. Um, there are two ways to apply, and it depends on kind of what your situation is. Uh, one's affirmative asylum and one's defensive. Um, the general rule, and there are a couple of exceptions, is that you file for affirmative asylum if you're not in what we used to call deportation proceedings, now we call removal proceedings, and defensive if you are. Um, and that distinction is really important because affirmative asylum, meaning if you're not usually deportation proceedings, it's a much less adversarial process. You go to, you have, you know, you file an application, you have your interview at an asylum office with an officer, not a judge. Um, 
But defensive asylum, on the other hand, is very adversarial. You go to an administrative law court, you're facing an immigration uh, judge, and you're against an ICE prosecutor. And if you're unrepresented, you have to um, you know, file your application in English, all supporting materials, English translations. So it can be a, a very you know, difficult, uh, daunting process. An important point, a lot of confusion, there's a lot of confusion between asylees and refugees or asylum seekers and refugees. The eligibility test is actually the same, um, but refugees de demonstrate eligibility outside the United States and they come in as refugees, while asylum seekers have to be physically present in the United States before they can apply. We have a call that has come in now. Let's go to Bobby in Pontotoc County. Bobby, thank you so much for being a part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, I hope you all doing all right. But what I wanted to ask you about, I'm 77 years old, and I've been listening to police scanners all my life. And I noticed that here in Mississippi that the law enforcement seems to target people with dark skin like blacks and Mexicans and Cubans for liability car insurance on Friday and Saturday nights, and they don't target whites for liability car insurance. Ain't that against the law? Amelia, you want to try to take this one? Yes, that's an excellent question, and that's an actually an area where we focus some of our work. Um, there, you know, there is a lot of concern, and we have had cases, we have had calls on, um, you know, checkpoints, especially in areas where there are a high number of immigrants. And Max has actually done a lot of work on this. Max, do you want to give a response to that? Absolutely, yeah. I, um, I, I'll say that I, the the situation that that you described uh, is. Is, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the program, is, is one of the more common uh, that we see in, uh, for how a person who is a, a law-abiding individual in the state can go from uh, a basic trip to the grocery store or driving to work and end up in immigration detention centers uh, imprisoned and, and fighting, their, uh, fighting for their life, basically, to stay here in the United States. Um, that is, um, you, you know, I, I've been told I, I, that, that it's, uh, that it's, that Checkpoints uh, are uh, oftentimes geared specifically for driver's licenses and car registration. Um, that is, that comes from uh, from federal law, and uh, and 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 um, that, that 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 there are certain things that are allowed for checkpoints uh, that, and those have to be directly related to uh, driving or to an emergency situation on the road. Uh, what does not, what is not incorporated in that is. Uh, checking for immigration status, asking individuals uh, who they're, who police are stopping at, at these checkpoints if they have an authorized immigration status, for example, um, that is that is actually not allowed. Um, there, it, Mississippi is one of the states in the country that does not have a formal agreement with the federal government that permits uh, local law enforcement officers, sheriffs, uh, deputies, police uh, chiefs, and and their uh, and their staff to enforce immigration laws, and so. What you do see is, you know, as far as the stopping goes, especially at these checkpoints, every single person is stopped. Uh, so there's no profiling necessarily in that sense. But where you do see the profiling is the types of questions that are asked of individuals, uh, particularly people who uh, don't speak English or who have accents. Uh, they're asked to provide quite a bit more information like immigration status. Uh, and that is profiling. That, that is asking people for information that the police are not allowed to be asking either. And that can be really detrimental for people's lives and, and can lead to 
Um, those, you know, five seconds of a question that an officer might ask, whether or not you have an authorized immigration status, those five seconds can lead to years of family separation. Thank you, Bobby. We appreciate you calling in. We're talking about immigration and immigrants' rights today. And, you know, I, I will go back to loop back around to Sue's question for a second. I think one reason why lawyers get involved in these issues is because people have rights. And even even people in this country who are not citizens actually have rights. And, and you know, and lawyers' jobs are to, are to help protect those rights and make sure that the system plays by the rules, right? You know, prosecutors have to play by the rules and, and the system has to play by the rules. So we appreciate both those calls. Um, so, you know, we talk about, well, how does the Center for Justice work with people applying for asylum? We were talking about asylum. And what are some of the things that, that, that you do for someone who is in the position of applying for asylum? Yeah, um, so that's actually the area where I focus my work, um, especially at the appellate level. We represent asylum seekers and we prioritize asylum representation for a few reasons. Um, first, as many of the listeners know, for asylum seekers, removal proceedings are really life or death matters. So having an attorney familiar with the ever-changing laws is really important. Um, but because many asylum seekers are detained, including here in Mississippi at Adams County, um, many have the resources to hire private attorneys, so they face this daunting and adversarial process alone. Um, and we also focus on appellate representation, Richard, exactly for the for the reason you mentioned in terms of you know protecting rights um there are very few uh, asylum practitioners in the region and uh very few and no one else in mississippi focuses on asylum appeals but asylum appeals have become more increasingly uh important as immigration courts have become increasingly politicized and backlogged Appeals are a really important mechanism to challenge and correct both individual and systemic injustices and constitutional violations. Um, and most importantly, you know, they help achieve freedom and safety for our clients. Um, we've worked with a really diverse group of asylum seekers, including uh, most recently a Nigerian and Honduran Christian evangelists, Cuban political dissidents, uh, Cameroonian, Egyptian, and Venezuelan political protesters. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the group of asylum seekers is quite diverse and um, I think just highlights also the diversity of immigrants here in Mississippi. It's so interesting. It's such important work that you're doing. Um, now, you mentioned appeals. So, I mean, are the asylum court, the, the original courts, um, are they typically favorable to asylum petitions? So the way the immigration courts work, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, there are a number of administrative law courts nationwide. Um, and then the first level of appeals is to a body called the Board of Immigration Appeals, and they hear appeals from all over the, the, the country. Um, and then the next level of appeal is the circuit. Um, so interestingly, because Mississippi does not have an immigration court, um, Mississippians either have court if they're not detained in Memphis or New Orleans. So um, depending on where you end up, you would have different circuit law applying to your case. So especially with asylum, kind of definitions of what persecution is, sort of these really nuanced things can make a big difference. And so whether your case is heard in Memphis or New Orleans can actually make a big difference to your asylum claim because of what the circuit law is. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. 
If you are interested in helping the Mississippi Center for Justice continue to advance racial and economic justice in Mississippi each and every day, I'm going to tell you how you can do that next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also on our MPB public media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you would like to help the Mississippi Center for Justice to continue to advance racial and economic justice in Mississippi, just go to their webpage, mscenter4justice.org. There's a Join the Fight tab where you can donate now. We're talking with Amelia McGowan and Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We have a couple of phone calls that we hope we'll be able to get to. Let's go to Jerry in Brookhaven. Jerry, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question for the show? Hey, good morning. Um, I'm concerned about some things I've seen on 60 Minutes and have heard stories about uh, People here from on student visas and even even foreign dignitaries who who commit crimes and get away with it and escape the country. I'm just wondering how that can happen. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you on the radio. Thank you, Jerry. We appreciate you calling in. Thanks, Jerry, for um, for that question. I'll, um, so it sounds like you mentioned two different groups of people in particular. So I'll start with the first, which is uh, individuals on student visas. Um, as far as I'm aware, there there uh, there is no uh, law that that provides any kind of clemency or protection for individuals here in the United States under a student visa that commit a crime. They are charged the exact same way, go through the exact same criminal process. Uh, when you look at um, at people that are here, uh, diplomats, uh, there is something called diplomatic immunity. Uh, but again, that, and, and, and basically what that means is that if there is a diplomat, let's say the English prime, or sorry, the English uh, minister, you know, foreign minister to the United States, if they commit a crime, uh, in order for uh, the United States to be able to try them and to um, to put them through our criminal process, there's a certain degree of uh, permission that we would need to seek from the country of origin. Um, as far as I'm aware, um, that I mean, by and large, that is that is. Um, 
that that's something that's actually uh, you know executed and, and taken care of. Um, I've seen it more commonly in the opposite way. So if you look at uh, actually to use the England example, um, as recently as this year, there was an American citizen that was a diplomat in England that was um, charged with uh, manslaughter because they ran someone off the road and killed them. And they fled and came back to the United States in order to uh, to prevent uh, any sort of prosecution. And so it does work both ways. Uh, but but realistically, that's that's very rare. And, and those situations, I think, are are blown out of out of proportion and oftentimes mischaracterized. I think that was always big topic on um, <clears throat> 1970s TV shows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen a couple episodes of NCIS that involved that. Well, Max, you wanted. I, listen, I think we had another call. Um, uh, no, they they uh, weren't able to uh, stay on the line. So let's move on and talk about DACA a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I I would really love the opportunity to to talk about DACA. That's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, it is a program that exists to give uh, two things: work work authorization, uh, so a work permit as well as uh, temporary reprieve from deportation or removal, as it's called, um, to certain individuals that, uh, that are in the United States without authorization. These are people who were brought to the country um, as, as children without permission. Um, oftentimes, these are people who have been here since they were one, two years old, uh, went to daycare, uh, elementary school, high school, et cetera, with, uh, you know, it, it, here, in the, here in the States, in Mississippi in particular, these are folks that attend Mississippi high schools, uh, play on Mississippi football teams, uh, star kickers for for, for various uh, varsity squads across the state. Um, but up in, uh, until they get to when, when they get to the age of 18, there's a crucial uh, differentiation between them and their classmates. They're not able to go to schools. They're not able to get driver's licenses. They're not able to work. Uh, really, they are trapped in a uh, in sort of a, 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 a cage of, of laws that restrict their their movement. That's where DACA comes in. Uh, people are able to apply for this program if they came to the country before turning 16, uh, as well as meeting a few other uh, requirements like being physically present in the United States in 2012 and coming here before 2007 uh, in June. Um, and what, what, what we have now in the country is a, is a moment of opportunity where people can apply for this program for the first time uh, in, in over uh, three years. Uh, so people who have never before had this program the doors are now open for people to apply, um, and, and the Mississippi Center for Justice is—it uh, it, is—it is one of our uh, goals to to reach as many Mississippi DACA uh, individuals. They're called Dreamers, uh, as possible to provide free legal support to to help them fill out their applications and submit them. Uh, and 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 another thing I'll say is that we're going to go ahead and share. A, a Google Doc form uh, with MPB to put on their uh, social media page. Please visit that, those websites as well as Mississippi Center for Justice, uh, our, our web pages as well. Um, we or call our numbers, but but bottom line, we we need to get in touch with you. If you are someone that thinks that you can uh, qualify for DACA, we we would like to work with you to place your case with a free attorney uh, to get you uh, signed up and enrolled in this program, so that you can um, so that you can you know truly uh live live your life in a way that is that is more authentically you and i think you know when you when uh when you talk about that max and, and i appreciate the fact that you said a free attorney um, i think people don't realize how much the center for justice does in terms of helping people not for compensation to you uh, as attorneys and so you know this is time that you give you know 
to help people, uh, not for monetary gain. So we greatly appreciate that. Um, you know, in the, in the last few seconds, how do you feel about the future of immigration policy? Are you optimistic? So one thing we've been pushing for, there are a lot of um, administrative rules that we've seen in the past years, particularly affecting asylum seekers. Um, those can be reversed fairly quickly, uh, a lot easier than passing a law. And so that's one of our hopes and one of our pushes. We've been doing a lot of asylum advocacy, for example, um, you know, really pushing to have um, fairer processes for asylum seekers that recognize our, our, our obligations to people fleeing persecution and torture. Um, another area where we're really hoping to, to push for a change and we're hoping to see a change is for a um, backtracking of the public charge rule that you might have heard about um, that impacts families who um, that penalizes some families who have received public assistance in the past from getting a green card through family members. Um, this has had a horrible chilling effect here in Mississippi, um, particularly people who have lost jobs because of the ice raids and also COVID um, that's prevented people from seeking medical care. So those are a couple of areas where we've been really pushing for change and, and hoping for, you know, hopeful for, for pretty quick changes in the future. Thank you, Amelia McGowan and Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today has been Jay White, and our board engineer has been Java Chapman or vice versa. <laughs> so for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll join us next Tuesday live at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 